Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I have no comments today, and I just want to challenge everybody out there listening to uh, not only listen to the broadcast, but communicate back to us what you think. I think uh, I haven't been forcing or enforcing that or requesting that enough. And so uh, please get your pen and pencils out and write me. Write me some information. On our last podcast, I began discussing a major flaw in Marlowe's character. Now, he ignored the warning signs that working for the Belgian Congo Company could be very dangerous and disastrous for himself. Now, um, I I think uh, it's something we all need to pay attention to. Now, Conrad recognized that this is the common flaw of all human beings. And Conrad even recognized in his memoirs that well-meaning men were caught up in doing shocking things in the Congo. And he even says in his memoirs they had no business being there. So I think Conrad wants us to fully explore the character Marlowe and obviously Kurtz as well. And we'll be getting into Kurtz uh, as we move along in this series. And what we need to learn from them is to obey the warning signs that are often brought to light on the path of life we're all walking. And I think uh, everyone out there who is honest with themselves will admit that sometimes we have these feelings, sometimes we have these senses, and we go ahead and we're just like Marlowe who said, dash it all, I'm going to do it anyway. Now for today's program, I want to continue discussing the warning signs that Marlowe ignored. Now, I thought what I might do is just do a brief summary of what I discussed on the last podcast. And remember, you can go to uh, the last week's podcast and make sure you listen to it. Uh, I think it would be so good for you if you have not heard it yet. It will make this podcast will make a lot more sense to you. But uh, the first point I made last time, and again, I just want to go through these quickly, is that Marlowe ignored the warning signs about the geography of Africa. And we're actually going to discuss a little bit more about this today as well. Now, again, remember, he was uh, walking the streets of, uh, of London. He couldn't get a ship. He was bored. He was driving his friends crazy uh, with just bugging them. And all of a sudden, he saw this map of Africa, and he remembered his boyhood dream. He was searching for adventure as a boy. He had been reading all these books as a boy about uh, all these adventures, you know, people discovering new continents. And uh, he decided that he definitely wanted to go to Africa, and he wanted to do that as a boy. Now, obviously, there was danger in all that. Now, it's in this in this section. Um, remember, Conrad describes it as a place of darkness. And I was reading the uh, the Penguin edition, and I was also uh, reading some of the notes from the Barnes and Noble edition that I have. And essentially what what the experts or the scholars believe is that when Conrad called Africa the place of darkness, he's really referring to Psalm 74 and verse 20. So uh, sometime after you're listening to this, you know, remember, just look up Psalm 74 and verse 20. 
And essentially what the quote is from that psalm is, for the dark places of the earth are habitations of cruelty. So, so there, Conrad, he did, he did know the Bible. And like I said, I don't think he was a, uh, you know, an overly religious man, but he still, he did read the Bible. And uh, I think he did, he did notice it. He, he did notice certain concepts from the Bible. So, so think about that, is that, that Marlowe, uh, he he knew it was a place of darkness, but uh, he also should have been aware that there, that you know in darkness are these dark places of the earth. There are these habitations of cruelty, and so certainly as we go through these uh, these next several programs, you're going to see that he began to realize really, really early on that there was uh, in the Congo, and especially in the Belgian company, there was the habitations of cruelty. Now, also, remember the geography. Uh, he he uh, always wanted to go to the Congo River, and he said it was like a giant snake. And uh, not only was it a giant snake, it was a hypnotic snake. And uh, he was the silly little bird that got caught by the snake. And notice, again, I think I said this just a few minutes ago, he said, dash it all. He was still going. And so uh, so he ignored the geography. Second thing I said uh, last last podcast is that Marlowe ignored warnings of his own family. And uh, essentially what I talked about, his his uh, excellent aunt, as he called her. And then uh, uh, on page 48, he said, uh, you know, he, he gave it. I'm going to read this quote again because I think it's so great. Um, he, he says, uh, uh, what, what Conrad Rice says, you forget there, Charlie, that the labor is worthy of his hire, she said brightly. And so, you know, here she's getting really religious about this company and uh, has no idea of what's really going on in the Congo. And so sometimes I think when we read Heart of Darkness, we have to remember that Marlowe is, is not only looking back in his own history, but he's also communicating what he's learned from that history as he's talking here. But he goes on to say, it's queer how out of touch with truth women are. They live in a world of their own, and they, and there had never been anything like it and never can be. It is too beautiful altogether, and if they were to set, set it up, in other words, if they were to set up the world, it would go to pieces before the first sunset. <laughs> and he said, some confounded fact we men have been living contentedly with ever since the day of creation would start up and knock the whole thing over. And so, so you know, he realizes that, that uh, his aunt really was out of touch with reality. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that is uh, not wanting to put any disparity on women because uh, I believe my wife has uh, some of the wisest people I know, and she helps me quite a bit. But notice this, he goes on to say, After this I got embraced, told to wear flannel, be sure to write often, and so on. And I left... <clears throat> in the street, I don't know why, a queer feeling came to me that I was an imposter. And so so here, even after visiting his excellent aunt, and uh, he realized she had built him up so much in uh, the company's mind that uh, he didn't think he could measure up. And then he's leaving her house with this weird feeling of being an imposter. And uh, I think, again, Conrad is saying all of us, as human beings can do that. You know, we can present a really good side and then actually really be imposters when we do that. So, uh, so that's another thing I covered. Then the, the, uh, the, the other thing that we have to remember is what he, what he uh, 
really didn't uh, pay attention to was <clears throat> the warning signs that he sensed about the company. And remember, Fleece Levin <clears throat> was killed by natives over two hands. And uh, um, remember, he also talked about Brussels and the company. He said that he always considered Brussels a whited sepulcher. And uh, there are some notes that I found uh, in the Penguin edition of Heart of Darkness. And I found that uh, another note in the, the Barnes & Noble edition. And I thought I'd read this to you about uh, the whited sepulcher. And uh, this is from the Penguin edition. This is page one, 120 of that edition. It says, this, this description of unnamed Brussels echoes, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whitened sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And so, so, so the thing is, that's what, what uh, Marlowe saw in Brussels, but that didn't stop him. And uh, he even goes on to describe the company. And uh, you know, he talks about its quiet streets, empty of decorum, of its boulevards, all those big houses so intensely respectable to look at, and so extremely tight clothes suggest the reserve of discreet turpitudes. And then he goes on as he's walking up, you know, to the company. It's like a desert area. It's like a slum. You know, the grass is growing up through this, through the the sidewalks, and uh, you know that should have been a warning to him as well. Now, also in the um, the Barnes and Noble edition, he talks about the whited sepulchre, and he said it, it goes on. Uh, again, he just quotes uh, from Matthew, but he goes on. He says the fact that Brussels, the capital of Belgium reminds Marlowe of Jesus' simile is intended to evoke the hypocrisy of King Leopold II's claims that his agents in the Congo were engaged in a humanitarian mission. And so I think that really, really clarifies what Marlowe uh, was seeing, but also what Conrad really thought about uh, the Belgian company. Remember, uh, you know, he did have his own, um, you know, time with them. And uh, uh, he he realized that uh, there's probably some things he got involved in he should never have got involved in as well. Now, um, uh, th- that's kind of like the review from the last program. <clears throat> when we were ending the last program, I was talking about um, uh, what he began to see about the company. And again, he, he kind of ignores it. And it's really, to me, it's really kind of shocking that he would do that. And essentially, I want to go to page 45 in my copy of the book. And it's, it's when he starts talking about the two fates, and, uh, or these are the two women that um, you know, he meets going into the company. Uh, and I'm just going to read you to, from page 45. He said, um, yeah, he said after he gives the, the description of you know, walking into the, into the companies, let's say the outside of the company, and again, you would expect a really uh, a, a company that would be cultural, a company that would really want to bring humanitarian, um, you know, values to the to the native uh, Africans. That the company would look better on the outside, <laughs> but it really doesn't look that great. It's like a slum. So then, when he gets inside, he says, two women, one fat and the other slim, sat on straw-bottom chairs, knitting black wool." 
The slim one got up and walked straight at me, still knitting with downcast eyes, and only just as I began to think of getting out of her way as you would for a somnambulist. And that's like, uh, that word means that she was like walking in her sleep. So it still looked up. Her dress was as plain as an umbrella cover. So I, I think of as like a black umbrella. And so, so here's this woman, you know, she's knitting black wool. She's dressed in black. And uh, uh, he says, her dress was as plain as an umbrella cover uh, room. I gave my name and looked about. Deal table in the middle, plain chairs all around the walls, and on one end a large shining map marked with all the colors of the rainbow. And so, to me, if if you can get the right vision in your mind, <laughs> this would not impress me. Uh, you know that that this is the person that's meeting you, or meeting you for the first time, or or meeting people visiting the company. And uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, essentially what uh, Conrad is doing, and I'm going to read this in in just a minute. But these two women that are knitting, and they're knitting black. They're knitting black wool. They're in black. They look drab. Um, they really represent uh, the two fates from Greek mythology. And I'm going to read you a little bit about this. But uh, uh, he goes on to say, uh, um, "Let's let me just let me just skip down here a little bit." He said, "A door opened, and a white-haired secretary, or head, but wearing a compassionate expression, appeared, and a skinny." Forefinger beckoned me into the sanctuary. It was its light was dim, and a heavy writing desk squatted in the middle. From behind the structure came out an impression of pale plumpness in a frock coat. The great man himself—he was five feet six, and I should judge—and had his grip on the handle of of ever so many millions. He shook hands. I fancy murmured vaguely, was satisfied with my French, and he said, "Bon voyage." So this is the director of the company. He spends like seconds with him. And all the man is concerned about is can he speak French? And, uh, uh, of course, uh, we all know that Conrad can speak French, so obviously Marlowe can speak French as well. Then he goes on to say, in about 45 seconds I found myself again in the waiting room with a compassionate secretary who, full of desolation and sympathy, made me sign some document. I believe I undertook, amongst other things, not to disclose my tra- any trade secrets. Well, I'm not going to. And so, so uh, uh, you know, he, he had to sign this. I'm not going to give away anything to any other company. Then it goes on to say, I began to feel slightly uneasy. And so, so here's Marlowe. Again, now he's in the, inside the company. He meets the two fates. He meets the head of the company who spends just a few minutes with him. And, uh, uh, you know, he's now starting to feel uneasy. He says, you know, I am not used to such ceremonies, and there was something ominous in the atmosphere. It was just as though I had been led into some conspiracy. I don't know, something not quite right, and I was glad to get out. But, but he's not trying to get out of the company. He's trying to get out of this room he's in. And it's, it's like you would have to think, why didn't he go a step further and think, Wow, this is so unusual. I wonder if I should get involved in this. He said, in the outer room, the two women, and so he comes back to the two fates. He said, the two women knitted black wool feverishly. People were arriving, and the younger one was walking back and forth, introducing them. The old one sat on her chair. Her flat cloth slippers were propped up on a foot warmer, and a cat reposed on her lap. 
She wore a starched white affair on her head, had a wart on one cheek, and a silver rimmed spectacles hung on the tip of her nose. She glanced at me above the glasses. The swift and indifferently placidity of that look troubled me. Two youths with foolish and cheery countenances were being piloted over, and she threw at them the same quick glance of unconcerned wisdom. She seemed to know all about them and about me, too. An eerie feeling came over me. Again, there he says it. He has another eerie feeling. He said, uh, an eerie feeling came over me. She seemed uncanny and fateful. Often far away there, I thought of these two guarding the door of darkness, knitting black wool for a, as warm a pall, one introducing, introducing continuously to the unknown, the other scrutinizing the cheery and foolish faces with unconcerned old eyes. And so, so that is really interesting. And again, there, you have to understand a little bit of mythology here to, to, really, uh, to really get this, what, what Conrad's doing here. And so I'm going to read you, this is a note on this section from the Penguin. It says, Resembling the fates of Greek legend Clotho and Lachis, who respectively spin and measure out the thread of each life before Atropos cuts it. And so this is from Virgil's Aeneid. And so, so here these two ladies, you know, are representing these two fates who, you know, it's, it's like they, they extend the life or as they're knitting, they give you a lifeline and then you only get so much. And so, so essentially what's going on here is these two women are representing that, hey, you know, uh, you, you get involved with this company, you know, you might have a short lifeline. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's just a kind of a genius move on, on uh, you know, Conrad's part. Um, if, if, we, if we discontinue on that section, um, he, he goes on to say that the, uh, the old knitter said, Ave, old knitter of Blackwell said, Morituri te salutant. So that's, that's Latin. And essentially, you know, they, they, they give him that. And essentially what that means is um, that this is what the, the uh, uh, let me get, see if I can find it. Yes. Uh, th- this is a quotation from, obviously, from the Latin. And it means, hail, those who are about to die salute you. <laughs> and so, so the, the thing is, uh, you know, why would you continue on? But uh, uh, he does. He just continues on. So, so I think that, again, that was another warning sign uh, that he, that he uh, just disregards. And he, remember, he said, dash it all. You know, I really want to go to Africa. I really want to experience this. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, uh, honestly, uh, he, he missed it. You know, he, he missed his chance to get out. Now, he still had a few more. And uh, he does have to visit a doctor yet. And uh, what what he experiences with the doctor, I think again, uh, if I'm reading it right, should have really helped him. But to, to, in order to see the doctor, he had to see the doctor's clerk first or his assistant. And it says uh, he. This is what Conrad writes. This is page 46. It says there was yet a visit to the doctor. A simple formality assured me the secretary with an air of taking an immense part in all my sorrows. 
Accordingly, a young chap wearing his hat over the left eyebrow, some clerk, I suppose, there must have been clerks in the business, though the house was still as a house in the city of the dead, came from somewhere upstairs and led me forth. He was shabby and careless, with ink stains on the sleeve of his jacket. His cravat was large and billowy under a chin, shaped like the toe of an old boot. <laughs> it was too early for the doctor, so I proposed a drink, and thereupon he developed a vein of joviality. As we sat over our vermouths, he glorified the company's business, and by and by I expressed casually my surprise at him not going out there. And so, so here, this is the clerk for the doctor, the doctor isn't ready, so they suggest, well, let's just have a little drink, <laughs> you know, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, I've never been at a doctor's office where they offered me a vermouth, you know, but I guess uh, this is the company. But, uh, uh, you know, he, he said, why aren't you out with the company? Notice what Conrad says. He became very cool and collected all at once. I am not such a fool as I look, quoth Plato to his disciples. He said sententiously, emptied his glass and with great resolution and we rose so so in other words here the the clerk is saying there is no way you're going to get me to go to africa <laughs> there's no way you're going to get me out there so then then he goes to see the doctor and i think this is a, just another good a good point he said the old doctor felt my pulse evidently thinking of something else for the while good Good for there, he mumbled, and then with a certain eagerness asked me whether I would let him measure my head. Rather than rather surprised, I said yes, when he produced a thing like calipers and got the dimensions back and front in every way, taking notes carefully. He was an unshaven little man in a threadbare coat like Aberdeen, with his feet in slippers, and I thought him a harmless fool. I always ask leave, in the interest of science, to measure the crania of those going out there, he said. And, and notice uh, Marlowe asked, and when they come back too, I asked, oh, I never see them. <laughs> so, so there's another, another indication is, come on, no one comes back. <laughs> there's, I can't measure. I can't measure them because I never see them when they come back, if they come back. Now, that's why I read it. Now, I could be wrong there, but I think that was another good warning sign for him. Well, people don't come back. So he smiled as if as if it's some quiet joke. So you are going out there, um, famous, and that what the word famous there means that oh, good for you. That's a blessing. He said, interesting too. He gave me a searching glance and made another note. Ever any madness in your family? He asked, a matter of fact tone. <laughs> I felt annoyed. Is that the question in the interest of science too? It would be, he said, without taking notice of my irritation. Interesting to, for science to watch the mental changes of individuals on the spot. And then he asked, but are you an alienist? I interrupted. Every doctor should be a little, answered the original imperturbably. I have a little theory which you, messieurs, who go out there must help me to prove. This is my share in the advantage of my country shall reap from the possession of such a magnificent dependency. The mere wealth I leave to others, pardon my questions, but you are the first Englishman coming under my observation. I hastened to assure him that I was not the least typical. If I were, said I, I, would be, I wouldn't be talking like this with you. What you say is rather profound and probably erroneous, he said, and with a laugh. Avoid irritation more than exposure to the sun, the dew. 
How do you English say goodbye? Ah, goodbye, adieu. In the tropics, one must before everything keep calm. He lifted a warning forefinger, said, "Do calm, do calm, adieu." So, so that would be a scary visit with a doctor, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, but it seems like, um, you know, Conrad just just could not stop. He just could not stop it. He had to keep going. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, I'll discuss Marlowe's first views of the Dark Continent and the company in Africa. Now, you can buy Heart of Darkness at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Now, of course, you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcug.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.